You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 77. This week, I would like to thank Stephen for his donation via PayPal, and Mark and Steve for becoming subscribers to the podcast Patreon campaign over at patreon.com slash history of the great war. Before we get started today, a bit of a programming note. The podcast will not have new episodes for the next three weeks, as I will be traveling to Europe with Mrs. History of the Great War for the next, you know, two and a half weeks or so. This is our second episode of what looks like will be five, detailing the naval action at Jutland. Last episode, we discussed some of the early operations at sea during 1916, and also discussed the state of mind of the British and German navies in the run-up to the battle. This episode sees the beginning of the action. First, we talk about how the two fleets got from their anchorage in Wilhelmshaven, Scapa Flow, and the Firth of Forth. Then we will look at the first clash of the day between the battle cruisers led by Beatty and Hipper. The actions of the battle cruisers, not all of which we will cover today, we ended up being the most damaging period of the battle for both sides, as the two sets of battlecruisers just beat on each other for several hours, while first moving south and then moving north. One thing to keep in mind during this conflict was that these ships are miles and miles apart for most of the battle. This meant that as the distance changed between the lines, there was a constant process of adjusting the targeting on the ships, often trying to hit ships that were just on the edge of visual range, especially later in the fighting when fog started to play a serious factor. Also, another piece to keep in mind, something that I often have to remind myself of, is that these ships were designed to take punishment. They had armor of varying thicknesses and strengths, but the entire ship was designed to be hit by the shells of the enemy, time and time again. And they would be. We will first discuss how the Germans got to Jutland. On the night of the 30th of May, Scheer sent a message to the fleet and to the German ships based in Flanders. The message was 33GG2490 which meant that the operation that Scheer had been planning was a go for the next day. Just before 10 a.m., Scheer sent a further message to his fleet to concentrate in the Outer Jade by 7 p.m. The Germans were bringing with them a total of 16 dreadnoughts, 6 pre-dreadnoughts, 5 battlecruisers, 11 light cruisers, and 61 destroyers. The part of these ships that was under the command of Hipper 
consisted of the six battlecruisers, five light cruisers, and 30 of the destroyers. By the time the German ships were leaving port, there were already problems for the Germans that Scheer would not know about until after the battle. The most important of these problems was that the submarine force that he had sent to ambush the British ships on their way to battle had completely failed to do anything useful at all. Scheer also made two important decisions before his ships left port that would have ramifications later. The first was that Scheer decided that the Zeppelin scouting was just not going to work due to the weather conditions. This was mostly a decision forced upon him by the prevailing conditions at the time. The second decision was something that Scheer decided on his own, and that was to bring the second battle squadron with the rest of the fleet. The second battle squadron consisted of six pre-dreadnoughts. These ships only had four 12-inch guns, which was bad, and severely limited their usefulness. But what was even worse was the fact that they could make only 18 knots, far below the fleet speed of the rest of the high seas fleet, and even further below the fleet speed of the British. You may remember that it was the inclusion of the Blücher, an old and slow battlecruiser at the Battle of Dogger Bank, that had cost the Germans that ship, and also almost cost them the rest of the fleet of battlecruisers. You would think that they would have learned, but they did not. As it was, the entire German fleet was now constrained to 18 knots. While having a few more guns probably made the Germans feel good, the ships probably would not have been much worth in a fight, and it's difficult to see how they could have been used advantageously. This was known to the Germans at the time. They weren't oblivious to the fact that the ships were old. They had even came up with a nickname for them, and that nickname was Five Minute Ships, because that's how long they were expected to last in a major fleet action. The first people to know of the German fleet's planned movements, maybe before some of the German captains themselves, was the British intelligence officers of Room 40. They had already deciphered all of the messages that had been sent out about the U-boats, and on May 30th, they also received the signal that Scheer sent to the ships of his fleet, that was the 21GG2490 order. They were not 100% sure what this actually meant, but they assumed that it was something. What clued them into the fact that it related to the German fleet moving out to sea was all the other signals that were sent to German ground stations and to other ships for location and progress reports. All of these things put together meant that it was almost certain the high seas fleet was moving out of its protected ports. This news reached Jellicoe and Scapaflow at about noon of May the 30th. Just two hours after it had been broadcast, and just a few hours later, the order was sent to the ships to provision and to prepare for action. This resulted in a massive number of flagged signals sent between the British ships and a mad dash between ships and the shore to get men on board their proper ships, because they'd sort of been all over the place. As each ship was prepared for departure, they would raise the flag for ready to proceed, to let Jellicoe know who was ready to go. Jellicoe sent out the normal orders to the fleet before departure one of which was that they would maintain radio silence unless an enemy was sighted or he himself sent the ships a signal, in which case he would, you know, expect a response. As fate would have it, the British would leave their port before the Germans would, which I just find hilarious. As they moved out of Scapa Flow, signals were sent ahead and the anti-submarine nets were pulled back to let the fleet through. But they would be missing one ship, and that was the aircraft carrier Campania. The carrier had been anchored away from the other ships behind an island, and it did not receive the order to leave. So as it was, the one ship that Jellicoe really wanted, and also the one ship that could have helped scout a bit, which will become a huge problem for the British, would be left behind. 
By 10.30 p.m., the Grand Fleet was on its way towards Jutland, with three distinct groups of ships preparing to converge, with Jellicoe's ships steaming from Scapa Flow and Cromarty, and Beatty coming from the Firth of Forth. The orders given to Beatty were as follows. He was to move to a point 100 miles north of Horn's Reef, with a goal of arriving at 2 p.m. If by that point he had not found the enemy, he would steer towards Jellicoe's location and get within visual, visual range, at which point further plans could be developed on the spot. The group of ships under Jellicoe was comprised of 24 dreadnoughts, 3 battle cruisers, 8 armored cruisers, and 47 destroyers. And with Beatty, there were 6 battle cruisers, 4 dreadnoughts, and many destroyers. The British would have a considerable numerical advantage in the coming confrontation, with the dreadnoughts being 28 to 16, the battle cruisers 9 to 5, and then the lighter ships being 113 to 72. But as we'll see, this won't be a huge advantage, or at least they won't fully take advantage of it. The British guns were also bigger, with 160 guns larger than 13.5 inches, while the largest German guns were just 12 inches. As these ships left port, they all managed to get past the German submarines without any problems, although there were many false submarine sightings, both right at the beginning and throughout the rest of the battle. At this point, the warships were very concerned about submarines, very, very concerned, because the only real countermeasure to a submerged submarine was to turn away and go to full speed to outrun them. This concern and this countermeasure would have an effect on Jutland several times. As it was, the British ships all sailed eastward, and Beatty arrived at his assigned destination at about 2 p.m., and he began to give the order to turn north to rendezvous with Jellicoe. The German ships were nowhere to be seen. For Jellicoe, the trip from Scapa Flow to where he was north of Beatty at 2 p.m. was probably an extremely busy time. He was getting his fleet in order, and he was constantly getting updates from the Admiralty based on information from Room 40. This was the British using their ability to intercept any wireless message and to generally pinpoint its location to a reasonable degree of accuracy extremely well. Like, this is the first war where you could really give an admiral at sea real-time information, something that we just, you know, do today offhand. However, they what they had for information was not always correct, or at least it was not always interpreted correctly somewhere along the chain. Part of this was simple confusion on the British side and some of it was purposeful deception by the Germans. As an example, when Scheer left port, he transferred his call sign to a shore station, which would continue to broadcast certain pieces of information under that call sign. This was done for major ships like the German flagship. Since it would never leave the fleet, it would be easy to tell where the fleet was just by finding the call sign. The move of the call sign to the shore station had been Shear's practice since he took command, believing that it provided him at least a small advantage. There had been some initial confusion on the British side, but by the time of Jutland they'd pretty much sorted it out, and knew that Shear would choose another call sign when he left port. This did not prevent it from causing confusion on May the 30th, though, specifically when the director of the operations division of the Admiralty, Captain Thomas Jackson, came into room 40 and asked where DK was, DK being the call sign of Shear's ship. One of the officers in room 40 answered that it was still in port. He had been asked a simple question, and he gave a simple answer. What the officer could not know was that Jackson did not really care where DK was. He cared where the high seas fleet was. But since he did not know that the two could be in different places, a message was sent to Jellicoe that read, quote, No definite news of the enemy. They made all preparations for sailing early this morning, 
It is thought the fleet had sailed, but directional wireless placed the flagship in the Jade at 11.10 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Apparently, they had been unable to carry out airship reconnaissance, which has delayed them. End quote. This was the seed, or one of the examples, and along with other message that was, messages that would prove to be false, it would cause Jellicoe to lose all faith in the messages and information that was sent from the Admiralty. He did not know how or why they were so incorrect, but he knew that shortly after he received the message, at 4.45 p.m., Beatty was signaling that he was within sight of the high seas fleet. Indeed, he was being fired at by the German ships themselves. This obviously directly contradicted the message from England, so he chose to believe his other admiral at sea, which was very smart, because he was the only one that was correct. There would be consequences of Jellicoe losing faith in the information that he was receiving especially during the forthcoming night action, when the Admiralty would actually be sending him correct information, which he would then not believe. But we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Remember, in our story, Beatty hasn't even found the German ships. When the message was received that the flagship of the German fleet was still in port, and before Beatty contradicted it, Jellicoe believed that, mo- that the most his ships would encounter were the battle cruisers under Hipper, and Beatty, augmented by the Queen Elizabeths under Evan Thomas, should have more than enough firepower to handle them easily. So Jellicoe maintained his somewhat leisurely fleet speed on what looked like another, you know, pointless voyage out into the North Sea. At 2:10 p.m., Beatty went ahead and hoisted up the flag signal, alerting his ships that the turn north towards Jellicoe was imminent. At 2.15, he brought the signal down, which was the typical signal that the other ships should then execute the turn. Ahead of Beatty, the light cruiser Galatee was still sailing south. Of the light cruiser scouts that Beatty had under his command, the Galatee was the furthest south, and as such, found it difficult to see the signal. Because of this difficulty, for a few minutes, the Galatee continued on course until a lookout saw ships to the south. Eight miles to the south of the British ship, there was a plume of smoke that could easily be seen in the afternoon sun. At that distance, the Galatee could not see the ship that was causing the smoke, just the smoke itself, so the captain took it on himself to continue south to get visual confirmation. Just a few minutes later, the Galatee raised the signal, enemy in sight, and broke radio silence. Urgent, two cruisers, probably hostile, in sight, bearing east-southeast. The first shots of the battle would then be fired at 2.28pm, when the Galatee shot her 6-inch guns at the German ships. Things started to progress extremely quickly, after about 2.25pm. Over the next 10 minutes, several things happened. A German destroyer reported the sighting of the British ships on grid square 164 of the German charts. Soon after, Hipper turned all of his ships towards the sighting. At 2.30, Evan Thomas turned to the north, in accordance with the previous signal from Petey. At 2.32, the Galatee came under fire from the German cruiser Elbing at a range of 14,000 yards. Also at 2.32, Hipper went to full speed towards Petey. Also at 2.32, Petey ordered his ships to increase speed and turn to the southeast, hoping to get behind the German ships. Beatty even had the lion's helmsman turn before even waiting for the rest of the ships to acknowledge the signal, not wanting to waste any time. The other battlecruiser captains turned with Beatty, having experienced this type of quick decision, some might say rash, before. At 2.35, the Galatee signaled another report. Have sighted large amount of smoke as though from a fleet bearing east-northeast. 
This signal was received not just by BD but also by Jellicoe, who also went to full speed in order to meet up with BD sooner. At 2.37, a shell hit the Galatee for the first time, hitting squarely under the bridge but not exploding. At 2.38, BD ordered all of his ships to go to battle stations. It was not until 2.40 that Evan Thomas turned his Queen Elizabeth to the south to follow Beatty. Those frantic 10 minutes of actions that I've just outlined, and trust me, I could have put a lot more in there, sent the stage for the battlecruiser contact. The biggest problem for the British was the distance between Beatty and Evan Thomas, which was about 10 miles, and this would greatly delay Evan Thomas's ability to contribute early in the fighting. Over the last century, there's been quite a bit of discussion about this mistake by Evan Thomas. I would say that the problem lay with Beatty, who did not follow proper procedure and wait for his signal to be acknowledged before turning. Evan Thomas was just following the last set of orders that he had been given, and being used to serving under Jellicoe, he knew that he was expected to follow orders, even if they seemed a bit odd. If he had been more comfortable with Beatty and his style of command, he would have known that while Beatty expected his captains to follow orders, he also expected them to follow his lead if he made any decisions like turning before getting the signal acknowledged. For the next 12 minutes, Beatty and Hippard continued on their new courses. But importantly, Hippard did not know that Beatty was in the area, believing that he was facing just a few British light cruisers. At 3pm, Beatty turned his battlecruisers to the east to come around behind the Germans, and then he turned northeast 10 minutes later. He believed that he was now perfectly positioned for an action with Hipper, but as it would turn out, Hipper was further east than he expected, which meant that he was not perfectly placed. It was good enough, but not perfect. Remember that this was a time before GPS, which can now give anybody their location on Earth to within a few feet. And at this point, ships had to rely on proper charting to keep their position. And when they got off by a few miles and then reported the positions of enemy ships whose positions would also maybe be off by a few miles, you sort of get this cascading effect of being way out of place. And this is just a fact of naval warfare at the time. You just had to expect it. And so what would happen is, is that periodically the flagship of a fleet would report what it thought its location was to the rest of the ships in the fleet. And then they would sort of zero in on that location. So that if everybody's wrong, at least they're the same wrong, which is good enough. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous reign of terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of Grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world 
without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. When the Germans had been spotted, most of the men on the British ships had just started their afternoon tea. And as action stations sounded, on the ships, many of the men grabbed as much food as they could bring with them to their battle stations, especially those who had been in action before. The preparations for battle were carried out on both sides, with fire hoses laid out through the corridors and all the glass removed from exposed windows. This step makes sense, and was another one of those small details that I'd never really considered. If you think about it, having a bunch of glass just waiting to be shattered and sent around the ship at high velocity in tiny sharp fragments is a thing that you would hope to be able to prevent if you could, and so they did just that by taking down all the windows. This meant, though, that the men on the bridges and in the other rooms that looked towards the front of the ship had to put on scarves and greatcoats and hats and deal with the fact that it was very cold in the North Sea that day, and now they were being hit by a wind of over 20 knots. The first battle cruiser to spot the enemy was the New Zealand at 3.15, which spotted five ships on the horizon. At 3.20, the Germans also spotted the British ships at a distance of about 17 miles. At 3.25, Beatty himself sighted the German ships, and he increased the fleet speed to 24 knots and kept on course to the northeast. Hipper, on the other hand, was going 24 knots and decided to hold on to his course that he was on. This would mean that he would be headed directly across the British path of advance, which also meant that he was heading away from Sheer. Beatty then ordered a turn to go directly east at 3.30. When this order was hoisted, Evan Thomas missed the order to turn, as he was so far away that it was difficult to read any signals, and this meant that Evan Thomas again continued on a previous course rather than adjusting to Beatty's heading. He continued to the northeast at 25 knots for a few minutes before finally turning to the east, again widening the space between Beatty and Evan Thomas. The real problem was that during this time Beatty had ordered another course correct to the east-southeast, and this broke all contact between the two groups of British ships, and it would be the last time that they would see each other for several hours. Now Beatty was alone with his six battlecruisers against Hipper, which should have been okay, they still outnumbered the Germans. The reason Beatty had turned to the east-southeast was to try and get out of the smoke that his own ships were causing. With the wind blowing the smoke of the ship in front onto the ship behind, it was just impossible to see. So at 3.46, Beatty sent his battle orders to his ships. The first two ships were to concentrate on the first German ship in the line, and then each ship would focus on the next ship in the line, and this was identical to the setup that had been ordered at Dogger Bank. On Hipper's side, he ordered his ships to hold course and slowly close with the British, and also changed his speed to 18 knots to allow his ships to close up a bit. This would be the situation when the two fleets met. Just one more word on Evan Thomas here. If his positioning would have been intentional, it was actually brilliant, because Hipper believed that he could beat Beatty. Even if he was down one ship, he he could beat him, and so he welcomed the fight, with the knowledge that Shear would be behind him backing him up if needed. This could have let Evan Thomas get in a position to ambush Hipper and his ships after the fighting had started. 
if Evan Thomas had stayed with Beatty the entire time, Hipper might have just ran south at top speed immediately, like he's not going to take on the four Queen Elizabeths with Beatty as well. As the ships of Beatty and Hipper move into position to begin fighting, let's leave them for a moment to go back to Jellicoe. He was 65 miles to the north of Beatty as, as Beatty closed with Hipper, and he had not had a proper report from Beatty since the original sighting by the Galatee. He just had no idea what was going on. All he knew was that the Admiralty was telling him that the high seas fleet was still in port, and so Beatty should be okay, so he continued south, again at a leisurely 17 knots, until another report came in from the Galatee, and there were now multiple large smoke clouds on the horizon, which was indicative of the German battlecruisers, which Jellicoe sped up, you know, just in case. At this point, you can sort of lay out the positioning of the various fleets as this. Jellicoe was the furthest north. And then 55 miles to the south, there was Evan Thomas. And then another 10 miles, you have Beatty. Then you have Hipper, pretty close. Then 50 miles to the south was Sheer. They were not in a direct line north to south, but they were all steaming together at various speeds, and everybody was ready for action, so that's a reasonably good picture of where everybody is. Beatty assumed that Hipper was alone, but he knew he had Jellicoe and Evan Thomas to back him up just in case. Hipper thought Beatty was alone, but he knew he had Sheer to back him up just in case. So now, we're ready. At 3.48, Hipper signaled to his ships to open fire at a range of 16,500 yards. When I talked about the phases of the battle in the first episode, I mentioned that one of these phases was the run to the south. We have finally reached it, the first phase of the Battle of Jutland, as the British chased the German battle cruisers to the south. The two lines of ships were traveling closer to like a southeastern course, but that just ruins the whole thing and the whole naming thing, so we just go with run to the south. On the German side, they very quickly got the range of the British ships, with the first salvos falling within 200 yards, and further shooting slowly walking the shells in. After a few volleys, they began to register hits. The German plan was to have each ship fire at the British ship that was at the same spot in their line, and then the last of the German ships, the Vondertan, would split its fire over the final two British ships, the Indefatigable and New Zealand. The splitting of the fire of the Vondertan was obviously not ideal, but it was considered to be necessary to keep each ship of the enemy under some sort of fire, even if it was only half of the batteries of a ship. This was a great plan, and much like many great plans, it did not happen that way as the Vondertan focused all of her guns at the indefatigable, leaving the New Zealand free to fire without interruption. On the British side, they were having a similar issue, but much closer to the front of the lines. Beatty wanted the Lion and the Princess Royal to fire the first two British ships to fire at the Lutzow, while the Queen Mary engaged the second German ship, the Derflinger. However, this did not happen, and the Queen Mary instead focused on the Seidlitz instead of the Derflinger, and this left the, Brit- the German ship, the Derflinger, in the clear. This was very bad for the British, but it does give us one of the better accounts of the fighting from George von Haas, the gunnery officer of the Derflinger. He records that the Germans had the advantage of the light, which was behind them, and they also had far less smoke along the line. The British had the wind in such a position that it was covering all but the line at the front, And so when the firing began at 3.48, and it would continue at a top rate for the next 20 minutes, they were constantly dealing with not being able to see. While I'm talking about the next set of fleet maneuvers, and shells hitting, remember that all 11 ships were, for the most part, firing for all they were worth at the enemy the entire time. 
I don't want it to sound like I'm doing a play-by-play of the action. That would involve going far more in-depth than I think is warranted for the podcast. Just There was just constant firing along the line, though. About four minutes after the firing started, the Germans started laying down hits on the British line. The lion was hit twice, the Prince, the Prince Royal three times, the Tiger three times, so they were getting some pretty good hits in. On the bridge of the Lutzow, Hipper was probably very pleased with these results. One of his officers would recount about this time that, quote, His unruffled calm communicated itself to all those on the bridge. Work was carried on exactly as it had been in peacetime maneuvers. Another officer reported that Hipper, quote, could not be separated from the telescope. There was nothing much that escaped him, nothing he forgot, and he personally issued orders even on matters of detail. Just before fire opened, the first staff officer and the gunnery officer were discussing the unfavorable fire distribution. Hippet intervened with the remark that this was his business, no need worry about it, end quote. Haas, from the Durflinger, would record about this time that, quote, With each salvo fired by the enemy, I was able to see distinctly four or five shells coming through the air. They looked like elongated black spots. Gradually they grew bigger, and then crash, they were here. They exploded on striking the water or the ship with a terrific roar. Each salvo fired by the enemy raised colossal splashes. Some of these columns of water were of a poisonous yellow-green tinge. These would be Luddite shells. End quote. At 3.54, the range between the two lines was down to just 13,000 yards. This meant that the ship's secondary batteries were also able to join in on the firing, and they registered many hits on both sides, but do not seem to have caused much damage. As the distance closed, the firing on both sides became more and more effective, with the Germans getting the better of it. The difference became so pronounced that Beatty, seeing how much better the Germans were doing, had to turn his ships away. As the turn was executed, the Queen Mary was able to hit the sidelets with a shell right on the sea turret, which caused a huge explosion that ignited power to bags in the turret, and the heat and the shockwave of the explosion killed almost the entire crew of the turret. This reduced the fighting power of the sidelets, but did not bring her out of the line. The Tiger was taking a beating on the British side, and this hit five times in just seven minutes. At 4 p.m., a shell, fired by the Lutzow, penetrated the Q turret and killed all but two men in the turret instantly. Both of them were mortally wounded. With near his dying breath, Major Harvey called down the voice pipe and ordered the flooding of the magazine, an action for which he would be awarded the Victoria Cross, sadly, posthumously, because he would save the ship. Seventy men had been lost in the turret, but because the sheet of flame that raced down the powder hoist was stopped by Harvey's actions, the explosive power went out the top of the turret, Surely an impressive sight, and clearly a problem for the lion, but the fireworks were more impressive than the actual damage done to the rest of the ship, so the lion was able to stay in the fight. While the range lengthened between the two lines, the Germans continued to register hits. At 4.04, the Vondertan landed three hits on the indefatigable, all three of them hitting the same turret. The third would penetrate. The explosion ignited the powder bags that then sent the same sheet of flame down into the magazine as had happened on the Lion, but here there was nobody alive to get the fire door closed or to flood the magazine. When the fire hit the magazine, a giant explosion rocked the ship. Here's an account of an officer from the bridge of the New Zealand, one ship ahead of the indefatigable. Quote, 
We were altering course to port at the time, and it seemed as if her steering was damaged, as she did not follow around in our wake, but held on until she was about 500 yards on our starboard quarter. While we were still looking at her, she was hit again by two shells, one on the forecastle and one on the fore turret. Both shells appeared to explode on impact. There was an interval of about 30 seconds, and then the ship completely blew up. The main explosion started with sheets of flame, followed immediately by a dense, dark smoke cloud which obscured the ship from view. All sorts of stuff was blown into the air, a 50-foot picket boat being blown up almost 200 feet, apparently intact, though upside down. End quote. In just a few minutes, the ship capsized and sank. Out of the 1,017 men on board, only two survived to be picked up by a German destroyer several hours later. The distance between the two lines of ships continued to lengthen, and eventually the fire died down. On the Lion, Beatty was unable to communicate through wireless because his transmitter had been knocked out, and he was forced to relay orders by flag to the Princess Royal. For the British, the situation, all told, was looking pretty dire. Already losing a ship, and now Beatty unable to really communicate with anybody else. But now Beatty would be assisted by none other than Evan Thomas who was about to arrive and bring his four Queen Elizabeths and their 40 15-inch guns.